Hello and welcome to this The First Governments and Markets podcast from the Independent Research Forum with me, ex-fund manager and sell-side investment strategist JP Smith. I'm now a senior advisor to the IRF and having run my own research firm from 2014 to 2020, I'm a big supporter of independent research. The Independent Research Forum markets the work of best-in-class independent research to institutional clients. In these podcasts, I'm going to be highlighting key debates among investors, drawing on the IRF providers whose work is available to paying institutional clients only, but also on material from more publicly available publications, social media and other podcasts to monitor the shifting debates and narratives that move markets. I'll be focusing on thematic issues with a medium to long-term focus rather than on day-to-day trading. I should warn listeners that nothing in this podcast should be taken as constituting investment advice. I tend to be instinctively contrarian, and whilst this approach can and usually does generate good returns over the longer term, it almost invariably leads to immediate market losses, and it's really not very good for one's psychological well-being. But the main purpose is obviously to set the scene and provide a framework so that investors can make their own better quality decisions. So let's use this first edition to identify some of the key issues we'll be analysing over the next few months in more detail. Those institutional investors who wish to follow up with any of the providers whose work is cited in this podcast should get in touch with their IRF representative or with me via my email, jp at independentresearchforum.com, and we'll arrange an introduction. First up, Let's set the scene looking at market regimes and the very rapid shifts in sentiment which have occurred over the last two and a half years and whether we may be at the start of another inflection point into a new market regime. In retrospect, of course, it's always easy and it certainly was easy coming out of the great financial crisis in 2009. It was really a one-decision market up to the end of 2019. It's just that most people didn't recognise it. You just buy index funds, preferably in the US, and sit on them. Yes, there were periods of volatility, the 2011 euro crisis, the 2013 taper tantrum featuring the Fragile Five. Who remembers that? Actually, I do because I was an EM strategist at the time. Not surprising that the vested interests in finance didn't actively promote the indexed approach. It was left to more disinterested people like Warren Buffett and perhaps not quite as disinterested John Bogle, the Vanguard founder, to promote what would have been a winning strategy for most retail and indeed institutional investors buying index funds, cheap fees over expensively intermediated alternatives like hedge funds, emerging markets and commodity funds. In March 2020, though, we entered a completely different environment due first to COVID and then earlier this year due to Russia's assault on the Ukraine. So over the long period of relatively low volatility leading up to the end of 2019, equity market activity had become dominated by two sets of momentum-generated investors. Firstly, computer algorithm strategies, most of them trend following, and secondly, increasingly momentum-driven retail investors. And what this means is that we started to see sudden shifts in market regimes in response to these external events. So in the initial phase of the pandemic, there was total panic with commodities and equities plunging, 
and government bond yields plumbing new depths, including negative yields, and also a brief period when oil prices went negative due to the difficulties of finding storage at a time when demand had fallen off the edge of a cliff. So then what we saw in spring and summer of 2020 was a coordinated response to the pandemic from central banks who injected liquidity and governments who obviously increased public spending by large amounts. And as this happened, so equities and commodities gradually rose and bond yields began to normalise. And then as we went through 2021, the S&P reached a new high and then possibly, and in my opinion, likely a blow off top at the end of that year. So the next stage earlier this year and towards the end of 2021 was a very belated realisation that inflation was becoming a problem, not least from a political perspective. The Fed, having focused perhaps on social objectives, most notably unemployment amongst minority communities, over their um, inflation, nominal inflation target. Now what we see is Fed officials and indeed officials from other central banks, such as the Bank of England and the European Central Bank, but not the Bank of Japan, exercising a 180 degree volt fast as they realise that inflation is more unpopular with more people than unemployment. So they're varying ever tighter measures against inflation. This was then compounded by Putin's assault and Russia's assault on the Ukraine, which triggered a sharp rise in gas prices. So that was another impetus behind the high inflation and the decision of central banks to tighten monetary policy in a fairly dramatic fashion. And initially, we also saw not just gas prices, but also oil and some food prices rising too. Though interestingly, much of the latter has now been reversed. And even oil prices are about 25% off their highs earlier this year. For markets, the blow-off has now morphed into a sell-everything-except-the-USD scenario, the dollar, everything-except-the-dollar scenario. And bonds in particular are recording historically bad performance. But even gold, the traditional safe haven, has performed dismally in dollar terms, at least since the start of 2022. So these are really very sudden shifts that have occurred, partly in response to external events and the shift in monetary policy that resulted from them and fiscal policy, but also because of the changing composition of the investor base to more momentum driven investors. So you expect overshoots to take place. So what is the next market regime likely to be? Are we near an end in the current um, dollar sell everything else regime? I've got three basic scenarios here. So the first one is more of the same. We see rates rising uh, and at least staying high as inflation settles into a higher range than the 2% that central banks are ostensibly targeting. In this scenario, risk assets will likely to fall or move sideways at best. And the US will stay strong pending a resolution to the Ukraine crisis. And indeed, that would be a game changer. I'll, I'll come on to that later. Second scenario is a dollar peak as the Fed is perceived to regain control over inflation without completely smashing up the UK, uh, the US economy. Um, and or Russia and the Ukraine reach the sort of resolution that takes the pressure off gas prices. In this scenario, both bonds and equities would rally. European equities in particular would outperform big time, as would some emerging markets, 
both equity and debt. Further down the track, oil could be the wild card. I think in this scenario, oil and gas prices might have an inverse relationship. So if gas prices were to fall, it's possible that oil prices would rise due to increased economic activity, and that in itself might eventually put a cap in the rally. But that's further down the line. The third scenario is that the Fed breaks something so significant that it changes courses. Now, this could be the US economy, could be the equity market, US high yield housing, or it could be something external like an emerging market or a frontier market. Sovereign bonds and equities would part company for a while as yields fall and equities absorb lower earnings. Now, this is actually my um, favoured Uh, scenario. I think it's marginally the most likely, but obviously we're in the hands of a lot of imponderables, particularly when we look at Russia and the Ukraine. And the scenarios have many moving parts involving both cyclical and secular themes, all of which are contested. So in the remainder of this podcast, I just want to highlight three of them, namely inflation, Russia and the Ukraine, and then China, and then go on to develop these themes in more depth in subsequent episodes. So let's start with inflation. So there are three proximate causes behind rising inflation. I I was taught actually that they're always three. You always have to use the rule of three. But in this case, I think it's fairly fairly valid. The first is obviously labour costs, which have been sticky, to put it mildly, uh, in the US and other developed market economies such as the UK. Secondly, the fiscal expansion which took place during the COVID, particularly in the US, the fiscal expansion which took place right at the end of um, the COVID pandemic during the Biden administration. And then finally, Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. But we should also look at some of the structural factors. And a lot of these are dealt with in a lot of detail by some of the IRF providers. So these structural factors are things like demographics, deglobalization and nearshoring and possible commodity scarcity going into the green transition. And then on the other side, so these on the face of it are all inflationary forces. On the other side of it, the possibility of faster than expected productivity growth on the back of technological advances and the outsourcing of services. So I think there's relatively little debate about the first three drivers, but there's significant differences in terms of the secular factors and also whether the Fed may already have done enough to drive not just the US, but also the global economy into um, recession. So let me start with um, just a couple of these themes. One of them is demographics. So I'd like to highlight here the work of Manoj Pradham and David Goodhart of Talking Heads Macro. And some time ago, they published a book called The Great Demographic Reversal, which had what at the time seemed to be the fairly um, contrarian conclusion that demographics and and ageing in the developed and large parts of the emerging world would be an inflationary force. Now, they have so far been proved absolutely right in terms of uh, inflation. And Manager, in his last note, was claiming victory with, with, I think, a high degree of uh, justification on this. Um, But I would encourage anybody to um, get in touch with them via the IRF. Um, Manage also makes very specific trading recommendations as well, which obviously I won't be going into 
in these podcasts. Also, Gerard Minnick delves into this debate. Gerard, like me, an ex-Morgan Stanley strategist, he's at Minnick Advisors, and he points to the decline in the over 55s in terms of the so-called great retirement and points out that cohort accounts for 37% of the working age population. Now, Now, there is another side to this as asset prices fall, of course, and I believe certainly looking at my own retirement plan, such as it is, that a lot of people will actually be forced back into work um, simply um, because of the sort of loss um, of purchasing power in terms of inflation and the decline in asset value. Another theme is nearshoring. Martin Wolf in the Financial Times wrote a very good article earlier this week called Globalisation is Not Dying, It's Changing. And he points out that whilst the slowdown in supply chain unbundling is real because of geopolitical tension and rivalry as the main driver between the US and China, something I wrote about a lot when I ran my extract company, and I was writing about this as early as 2016, 2017, he points out that services are a different story as other commercial services can be supplied virtually. So it's not necessarily a one-way bet, but in the short term, nearshoring looks set to push up US inflation. Taking another theme again with a slightly contrarian note, because most people at the moment are very bearish on inflation on a secular level, i.e. they think the central bank's targets are way optimistic, I should cite the work of Rao Pal, the founder of Real Vision, and also uh, writes the wonderful Global Macro Investor newsletter. And Raoul is what I would term a techno-optimist. His exponential age thesis stresses the wider application of technology at constantly lower um, prices. He's also a big crypto bull as well, which is possibly a little bit more controversial. But he outlines some of the gains in productivity through automation in his last newsletter, which have taken place since 2014. Some very interesting examples. And he actually concludes that the next 50 years is likely to be a new golden age where all the applied technologies improve our lives, increase our longevity and our well-being, along with productivity. Now, and he thinks that will get us out of what he calls the quagmire of the last 22 years, what Larry Summers would term secular stagnation. A lot of people will find Raoul's views rather panglossian, but I think there's something very appealing about them. And actually, if you look back, that's really been, that was certainly the history of, of the period since the um since since the great financial crisis, the understatement of productivity, the understatement of the importance of intangibles. So people endlessly going on about the Q ratio for the US market based on tangible assets, when really the importance was taking place elsewhere, it was research and development and intangible assets. So this is part of the big part of the structural inflation debate. And I would encourage people to engage with some of the IRF providers who have things to say about this. So there are some commentators who believe that the Fed has already gone too far. Some of this criticism comes from the liberal or left-leaning side of the debate. So Adam Tooze, the history professor at Columbia University, the Ones and Twos podcast and excellent newsletter, believes there's a non-negligible chance that the Fed is making an historic mistake. And then from a totally different perspective comes the great Tim Congdon, the doyen of UK-based monetarists, who in a recent letter to the Financial Times pointed to very steep declines in the money supply using M3, 
the quantity of money having gone up by far less than inflation, thereby squeezing real money balances. So he thinks that there will be outright falls in the quantity of money. And this is something which Michael Howell at Cross Border Capital, who's had a very good track record over recent years, he has a database he's been keeping since the 1980s, since his days at Salomon and then at Bearings, and now he's at Cross Border. And he monitors global liquidity on a very detailed basis. And he's been warning about the potential impact of quantitative tightening for some time and about the likelihood of a global recession and a sharp dip in risk assets. I have to say he does have a very interesting contrarian call on China. And again, I'd encourage institutional investors to reach out to Michael through the um, IRF. So there's a strong likelihood if the Fed cannot bring inflation back towards their target, they'll eventually break something, as as I said um, earlier. Andrew Hunt, the eponymous Andrew Hunt Economics, who's also been highlighting the impact of tighter US dollar liquidity on global markets, again, thinks that there will be much uh, worse to come. Meanwhile, Whitney Baker at Totem Macro has a sort of more new, a fairly nuanced view. So she points out that developed and frontier markets are in the eye of the US dollar liquidity storm. But on this occasion, at least, emerging markets are scarcely affected. Now, I believe China might be a partial exception to this, a topic I'll return to in the next podcast, which will focus on emerging markets. But if we look at frontier, Sri Lanka has already been a casualty, though most of this is induced by poor policy choices. And Bangladesh likewise. And Bangladesh has been an exemplar for the multilateral organisations of good policy. And then one place I'm particularly concerned about is is Nigeria, which certainly in demographic terms is a huge economy and also in terms of of stability. Global stability is also very important. The uh, Nigerian exchange rate has been under pressure for quite a long time. It trades officially at 421 Naira to the dollar and has now fallen to around 700 on the parallel market. Um, And if countries like Bangladesh and Nigeria become collateral damage to Fed policy, that may not be so significant for the Fed in terms of changing course. But of course, it will have other, perhaps even more significant ramifications. So that's all I want to say about inflation and the Fed for the time being. I'll come back to the impact on financial markets at the end of the podcast, because there are one or two indications that for bonds, sovereign bonds, we may actually have reached an inflection point. So Russia and the Ukraine, I want to deal with very briefly. Again, I'll come back to that next time. But I'd like to highlight a podcast I did with David Roach, the CEO of Independent Strategy, a couple of weeks before Russia's invasion. Now, at the time, most people were saying that Russia would not invade. And I was giving David some pushback on his view that Russia certainly would invade on the grounds that Putin was an economically and geopolitically rational actor. Um, And it turned out that that I was wrong and the consensus was wrong. And David absolutely nailed it in this podcast. By the end, he'd actually convinced me. And we reached the conclusion that, uh, above all, you should sell um, European assets. So sell the euro, sell um, European equities. Uh, You can contact David and his team via the IRF. And we have other providers who have very strong added value input on the geopolitical front, such as Neil Ferguson's Green Mantle, and Tenio Market Intelligence. So I'll, I'll take a more detailed look at the Russia-Ukraine crisis next time. As some of you may be aware, I'm a former 
reference specialist for, for, for my sins. But for now, I'll confine my remarks to saying that after the Ukrainian army has broken through militarily, the chances of some sort of resolution have risen. So, But unfortunately, of course, it's now become a, a, a more binary outcome. The possibility is probably still that there'll be a frozen conflict or prolonged conflict but but there are tail risks to that one of them is clearly positive which is a ukrainian military victory the other is that putin starts to escalate in a more serious way and that some of his rhetoric about using tactical nuclear weapons um, becomes reality it, it seems almost surreal to be discussing this frankly on a financial um, podcast but obviously he's attempting to extend his red lines from Russia and the Crimea to Donetsk, Kherson and Luhansk via the impending rigged referendums on um, annexation. To a lot of Russians, the other significant news is that the icon that is Allah Pugacheva has come out in public as an opponent of the war. Hopefully Putin's recent announcement about mobilisation of reservists will attract more opposition to the current Russia regime. Of course, any hint of a non-nuclear resolution to Russia and the Ukraine will put a fire under risk assets and trigger a rapid retreat in the US dollar, regardless of the Fed. But, but, but this is very difficult to model. In gas prices, the gas price now has almost halved in Europe from its highs that we saw only a couple of weeks ago. And the reasons for this are fairly well known. So relatively high storage, the retreat of financial speculators, reduced demand, 15% is the figure in Europe that's commonly cited, and increased demand from elsewhere through LNG. The key question is whether this is sustainable. So obviously the weather is an important issue uh, and whether Putin will escalate. But we have providers in particular who've analysed this situation in a fair amount of detail and have reached fairly different conclusions, but, but all of whom I think are worth referring to. The first is Euro Intelligence, Wolfgang Munchnow, and he is relatively optimistic that the acute gas crisis will be over by next year as supply becomes more diversified. He produces uh, an excellent, very regular newsletter on all aspects of Europe. He used to be a columnist for the FT, and I think he and his team, I think their material well worth reading. So the final third issue I'd like to highlight, in addition to inflation and Russia-Ukraine, is China, where the slowdown appears to have taken many of the commodity bulls in particular by surprise, in sharp contrast to the situation coming out of the great financial crisis, when China supposedly saved the world. Actually, China didn't save the world at all. It was the US, as is invariably the case. All China did was to push commodity prices and some emerging markets higher um, for, for, for a period of time. I think the slowdown in China is clearly structural, uh, as well as the COVID zero policy pursued by Xi Jinping's administration. And China is clearly critical for the course of most commodity prices, especially metals and other building materials over the short, medium and long term. And as such, is a key input and often overlooked, I think, by a lot of Fed watchers in terms of the outlook for inflation and monetary policy across all global economies. So the IRF has a number of great research providers with very, very different views about the prospects for China, and I'll be drawing on their work in the next podcast. In the context of this discussion on inflation, it's worth highlighting the work of Paul Hodges and his team at the PH Report. Paul is a former senior executive in the chemicals industry, 
which he describes as the best lead indicator in the world. And he and his team have given consistently accurate reason, uh, readings of the likely impact of Chinese demand on the volumes and prices of industrial goods. He's just published his latest monthly, and he's very well placed to analyse the prospects for energy intensive industries against the backdrop of rising energy prices and weak Chinese demand. I'm not going to spoil his thunder. You should see Paul and read his material, but I can tell you that he's not that bullish about China. So now, briefly, on to markets and two key issues. Has the US dollar rally gone too far? And will bonds and equities begin to part company? By that, I mean sovereign bonds. So I've already noted the increased tendency for markets to extrapolate existing trends and how that's been exacerbated over recent years by the increased importance of momentum, retail and computer driven investors. And so you invariably get overshoots. So this morning on Bloomberg, there was an article titled After Fed Hike, Analysts Say US Dollar Only Game in Town. Now, to a contrarian like myself, that's like ringing a bell. Having said that, obviously, Short term, it looks as though that momentum um, is likely to continue, but it does beg a number of questions. A sentiment towards the US dollar is now almost universally positive, partly due to Fed policy and the Ukraine, but also underlying that a widespread recognition of the inherent strengths of the US economy. And this stands in sharp contrast to the disgust towards all US assets which we saw in the immediate aftermath of the great financial crisis. And that, of course, is perhaps why, along with the humongous fiscal spend over the last two and a half years, why the US economy so far has been relatively resilient to interest rate hikes. I don't think that will last, but you know, other people may disagree. As well, the other key to the dollar lies in geopolitics. So we come back again to Russia and the Ukraine. It's virtually unanalyzable. And the stakes clearly are very high. But should that situation be resolved, then we would see a big dollar sell off and a risk asset rally. Taking a longer term perspective, Whitney Baker at Totem Macro talks about the dollar exceptionalism unwind. So in other words, the dollar having performed so well, largely due to the technology sector, the two have moved technology cycle and the dollar cycle have moved hand in hand. And she thinks over the medium and long term, one of the key themes in the market will be this dollar exceptionalism unwind. And again, I think that's something which is well worth engaging with her about. So will sovereign bonds and equities part company? So I'm surprised how few people seem to be asking this question at the moment. I think they've been bludgeoned by the terrible performance of bonds. So, and, and, and this in a way is a contrast with commodities. Commodities haven't performed particularly well last year. Coming from a background when everybody was actually quite bearish and underweight in bonds, but overweight and relatively bullish in commodities. So should we be asking the question, particularly whether longer duration bonds may be about to um, tick up? In a Bloomberg article published on the 20th of September, they pointed out that the 20-year Treasury bond, the TLT ETF, has fallen 38% from its August 2020 peak, the biggest drawdown since the fund's 2002 inception. So this really is a bear market for the ages. So, you know, if you believe that recession is near in the U.S., um, and if you believe there's a feedback loop from the problems in the rest of the world, 
back into the US economy through downward pressure on exports and corporate earnings and the slump in asset markets, then again, this increases the possibility that bonds may look more interesting. The, the focus of the longer end of the bond market has already shifted away from inflation towards issuance. Manoj Pradham at Talking Heads Macro, who I cited earlier, also highlights the growing fiscal risks, rising 10-year yields in the US driven by real yields, not um, break even. And clearly now the markets are more concerned about issuance and um, potential fiscal deficits. So um, the 10-year break-even rate based on the difference in yield on treasuries and tips has eased from a high of 3% in April to about 2.5%, just under 2.5% at the start of this week. And it seems investors are starting to respond. Bloomberg cites IHS Market Limited data showing that short interest as a percentage of the TLT shares outstanding dropped to a record low of 0.15% earlier this week after reaching 13% earlier in this year. Now, clearly, quantitative tightening is absolutely critical to this. The Fed no longer not just buying, but actually selling um, treasuries. And Michael Howell has been um, discussing this issue for uh, some time. However, in the past, there's also been a risk um, effect from either quantitative easing or quantitative tightening. In other words, because quantitative easing increases and pushes up risk appetite, that tends to push bond yields higher. If we're seeing quantitative tightening at the longer end of the curve, is it not likely that we will, despite increased issuance and despite fears about the fiscal deficits, that we'll start to see bond yields at the longer end start to move down? And the market action today, which is Thursday, the day after the um, recent, most recent Fed tightening and Powell statement, seems perhaps to start to bear that out. Now, of course, this doesn't mean we're out of the woods yet, as the market will punish what they consider to be poor policy choices. And I have a horrible feeling that the UK may be a canary in the coal mine. Um, Liz Trust and her chancellor haven't actually unveiled the budget uh, yet, the, or rather the fiscal event, which is going to take place tomorrow on Friday. But if rumours or leaks of a 200 billion potential boost to the economy are right, then this could end up rivaling Michael Foote's 1983 Labour Party manifesto as the longest political suicide note in history. However, again, a lot of the size of that deficit depends on the gas price. And if gas prices continue to come off, then Truss and her administration may prove to be extremely fortunate. But I wouldn't necessarily count on that. Just briefly on equities, um, there seems to be almost universal bearishness amongst institutional investors. But retail and a few of the usual suspect Wall Street cheerleaders remain relatively positive about the market or at least invested. Steve Holden at Copley Fund Research has a survey of almost 400 active managers with managing international equity funds. And he points out that despite having increased their weightings, the average institutional fund in his survey still has an underweight in the US of 5.7% and actually an overweight in Europe. This is food for thought if you're a contrarian. Um, you know, because the US has outperformed by so much. And even this year in currency adjusted terms looks good relative to 
quite a few of the um, European markets, although there are one or two emerging markets such as Brazil, Indonesia, and believe it or not, Turkey, which have uh, performed a little better again in currency adjusted terms. So very finally, I intend to end these podcasts with what I think is a fairly apposite quote from the work of one of the IRF's key providers. This week, it's James Aitken from Aitken Advisors, who describes the late Queen Elizabeth II as being the ultimate low volatility trade. Despite or maybe because he's an Aussie living in London, James queued to see the coffin in Westminster Hall and provides a touching tribute to the late Queen in his latest newsletter, along with his usual incisive analysis. So that's it this time round. Please get back to me or back to any of the other IRF people with any feedback on this podcast, constructive or otherwise. Next up, it's China, Russia and emerging markets. Until then, it's goodbye from me. Bye.